the Pope made his way to the um, Holy Land just this past week, and it is significant because uh, of the amount of time that has passed since a Pope has walked through the streets of Jerusalem and has visited that particular area. Uh, just in looking at the different news reports and the things that were coming up, you could uh, see the, uh, the different reactions that people had, not all of them being favorable reactions, as you can imagine. Uh, as we know, in that one particular place, right there in Jerusalem, for example, you have uh, the merging of Judaism, of Christianity, and of Islam. And as those three religions who draw their roots from really the same origin, uh, as they are gathered there in that one spot, um, the effects of that are not always positive. Uh, it would be wrong to say that they get along or that they are able to truly coexist in that area in uh, a way of peace. Certainly there is civility that takes place, and even as the Pope uh, and as popular as Pope Francis is, as he arrived there, there was uh, cordial uh, welcomes that, that took place. There were uh, extensions of hospitality and all of that. But as you look beneath all of that, there is still animosity. There is great disagreement about who actually belongs there, who actually owns these different sites and, and these uh, holy places, and even the city itself. And we know that there is constant strife going back and forth between all of these different religious groups. And as you look at that, you begin to wonder, at least I do, who's really right? Who actually is right about God? Is the Islam view of God the right one? What about uh, what the Jews believe? Is it right? Is it the right view of God? Or what about Christians and how we view God? Is it the correct view? Is the Pope the right one? And as you look at the different uh, pictures, some of the, uh, the news shots showed the Pope in somewhere where he was about to give a speech. He is sitting in what looks like a throne. He's sitting in his chair. It has crosses on it. Off to the side, you see a Muslim cleric or imam sitting off uh, to the side in his chair. And then you have an Orthodox Christian uh, priest over or bishop in his chair. And you begin to wonder those thoughts. Could we all be a little bit right? Could we all be a little bit wrong? What is the right view? Who truly knows God? Well, I believe that is what Paul is dealing with in this uh, 17th chapter of Acts. As Paul goes to Athens, Greece, as he enters into this very religious place, it is extremely religious in the sense that there are gods uh, that are known in that city. There are different temples and different places where gods have been recognized and worshipped. And as Paul is walking up to one particular temple, he realizes that it is a temple to an unknown God. A God that no one has been able to describe, a God that no one has yet been able to name, but yet they recognize that there is such a God there. And this God could be recognized. This would be the temple to the unknown God. Paul stands in front of the Areopagus and he says, 
Athenians, and you can just get this idea about Paul that he is um, waxing eloquently as he speaks uh, with all of the philosophical knowledge, all of the education that Paul has had. He is able to, uh, to talk with these people, to discuss deep the- theological and philosophical things with them. He says, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it. He who is Lord of heaven and earth does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. And he goes on to talk about how they view God and how the different people around them in Athens as well as outside of Athens, how how they understand God. But then he goes on to say, for we too are his offspring. He quotes some of their own poetry to them. Since we are God's offspring... We ought not think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. But one of the things that he mentions to them about God and how they could know God is that though indeed he is not far from each one of us. Did you catch that as it was being read earlier? After all of these descriptions about their gods and their understanding of God, and as he starts to talk about his own views and his own beliefs about God, he says that though he is not far from us, he wants them to understand, especially those who are familiar with this temple to an unknown God, that that God is not so far away from us that we can't grasp, that we can't begin to understand this God. In fact, that we, we could even get to that point of knowing God, that we could have a temple to God and we could have a name inscribed on that temple to understand how God has revealed himself. Paul was dealing with people who had different views about God. Certainly, if you had a belief in this God, this uh, Zeus, or any of the other gods that they would look to and um, Again, they were all around them. There was this understanding that gods would relate to them as they were out at sea, or gods would relate to them as they would grow crops, and especially as those crops could be decimated by just one storm passing through, they would understand that that god was pretty mad at them, pretty angry. Or if they were going to war, they would would look to their god of war to help them and to be on their side and to, to help battle against the other army. We still do that, by the way, don't we? Uh, Whenever we go to war, we pray to our God and understand that our God is on our side against the other people and their God, and we really haven't changed much in that way. But one of the things they believed about their gods were that their gods were really transcendent, that they were just this one little piece of uh, what was going on in their world and that uh, gods were so far away from them they really couldn't even talk to them. In fact, some of their gods just ignored them. 
And what Paul is saying to them is that God is not so transcendent and so far away that you can't relate to, to your God. God is ever-present. God is with us. And he would go on to describe this in such a way that they could understand how Jesus was revealing and manifesting this God to them. And so Paul says it is all about location. God is local. God is right where you are. God is in the midst of your problems and in the midst of your joys and in the midst of everything that is going on around you. God is there and you can know him. Now think about that in your own life today. Maybe you are much like the Athenians. I mean, I'm just looking at you thinking, you are all just as philosophical. You are just as deep and uh, you're constantly contemplating the truths of the universe, right? You are. You are in various ways at various times. And no doubt you have wondered about where is God? The uh, killing that took place over this last weekend out in California where someone, as we we learn now, uh, was very mad about being rejected, about uh, all of the girls that he has uh, asked out on a date or to a dance or anything else, that he has been rejected in every way. And so he is angry and decides that he is going to kill as many people as he can. And he set out and did a pretty good job of it. And as we think about that, we wonder, just as I saw a parent on the news last night, so distraught, angry, frustrated. That same idea that we would have if we were in his shoes. Where is God? We wonder all the time where God is. Maybe it's in the midst of depression. Maybe it's in the midst of anger. Maybe you feel much like that guy, though you would never do anything like that. But you do wonder. All these things keep happening to me, and I feel like the gods are against me. Have you ever wondered that? You have that kind of day where nothing goes right. I had one of those yesterday. Just nothing goes right. You think, there's not one thing that I could do today that would go well. I might as well go back to bed and start all over again. Have you had one of those? Okay. Two hands up. (laughs) We all have had those days, and we feel like God is against me. And we go back to that very primitive view of God. And we need to know, though, today, that we can know God, and we can know that God is not after us with a lightning bolt, that God is not out to get us. He is out to love us. That God is out to draw us unto Himself and to embrace us with an awareness of His eternal love and His care. And I wonder if you're knowing that kind of God today. Is God at your location? Uh, There is a, a, you know, if you go to a a particular map, maybe it's Google Maps, or I have to say that, by the way, since I'm testing something for them. Uh, Or, uh, did I say Google? Uh, if uh, If you go to a mall and you have no idea where you're going, you look at that little map that's on there and it says, you are here. This is your location. 
And so wherever you go in this next week, wherever you go mentally, wherever you go physically, you can know that God is there right where you are and that you can know God right where you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you've been. God is in your location. And as Paul says, though indeed He is not far from each one of us. Why do we feel like God is far from us? I hear that all the time as I'm counseling with people, talking with people, uh, that feeling of God has left me. God no longer cares about me. And you think about the things that you've done or maybe the things that you haven't done and you reason that's why God is not interested in me any longer. God has forsaken me and gone somewhere else. And you pray that God would come back to you. Do you feel that way? Have you ever felt that way? You too need to hear these words from Paul. He is indeed not far from each one of us. In fact, He is right there in our midst. Another way that Paul mentions that that we could know uh, God is through understanding how God is unlimited. You see, Paul was talking to a group of people who had put all kinds of limits on their gods. You could have a God who is limited to the sea. You could have a God who is limited to the air. Or a God who is limited to a particular part of geography. And if you went to that, that area you were bound by however that God ruled that country. Or if you went out onto the ocean, you would need to be sure that you understood the God of that ocean, Neptune or whomever, and that you would uh, act according to how that God ruled that sea. And the same thing is, uh, is true right inside of Athens as Paul is walking around. He sees their temples. He sees all of the idols that they have, the things that they've made with their own hands. And he says... That is not God. God has not revealed Himself to be in a stone or uh, a particular piece of um, carving of, of wood or anything else like that. God is not bound by what we can make with our hands. God is not bound by what we can create with our minds. And so Paul is wanting them to understand that they could know a God who is not bound by limits. We like to say these days that that God is not something that can be put in a box. Right? And we would say that to one another. We would say, you know, your God is too small if you have put God in a box. But don't we do that? We do, don't we? Maybe as you arrived at this place today, you arrived with a certain understanding of God. And it may be very different from the understanding that someone else has here of God. And maybe sometimes in discussions you can go back and forth about uh, your, your differing views of God because it plays out in how you live your life or what you believe in or what kind of behavior you have or the, the kinds of things that you do in the community or the things that you decide not to do in the community. It's all based on your box and how you have put God in your box. And we think we can do that, right? We put God so nice and neatly into our boxes that God would never want me to do that. I mean, that's just something that God doesn't like. Or God would never love that kind of person, right? We say that. 
God loves me, but God could never love that person. Or if you reverse it, you could say, well, I know God loves them and all of those people, but God could never love me. God knows my heart. God knows what I've done. God knows the terrible things that I have thought and said to other people. And so God, He is just in this box and can't relate to where I am. But we like to keep God in that box, don't we? I mean, it's more comfortable if you can keep God in a box, especially if you come to church and you bring your box of God with you and and you put your box of God on the pew right next to you and you make sure that that you kind of keep a top on that box, right? You don't want to let God out of the box. We certainly don't want to do that as a church, do we? All kinds of things could happen if we let God out of the box, if we took all of our limits off of God. But it is so nice, even if we do let God out of our box, that we put Him back in the box before we leave this place, right? And we put Him somewhere during the week where no one can see Him, where no one can understand how we relate to the God of that box. And we start thinking through in worldly ways that don't relate to a God who could never be put in a box. Maybe that happens at work. You realize you just cannot be the person that God has called you to be at work. So you just put a, put a heavier weight on that box. Maybe it's in the belief that things are never going to change for you. That who you are and where you are and where you've arrived in your life right now, that's as much as it's ever going to be. And you've given up on moving on. And if that's the way you believe, you've put God in a box. If you've ever said that God only loves this group of people and God can't love anybody outside of our circle, you have put God in a box. If you've ever said that violence in our world is the only way to be able to take care of justice in our society, you have put God in a box. If you have believed that our community is never going to change, if attitudes and thoughts and violence... By the way, just uh, this past week over in Allendale, uh, right where so much love has been poured out on a few city blocks there with uh, Fuller Center for Housing, uh, one of uh, our family, uh, although she worships in a different place on Sunday morning, LaShawn Paul, who works right here for Volunteers of America in the kitchen, uh, right on her street, there was a guy living in a Fuller Center house who walked across the street and uh, was angry, out of his head or whatever it was, walked over and uh, 10.30 at night, shot his neighbor, killed him, and uh, was still on the run, the last I heard. And you think about where all this love has been poured out, even for him to be able to have a home that he could live in and call his own, that other people like you and me have gone and we have painted those homes, we put up sheetrock, we put on shingles on the roof and all kinds of things. And we look at that and say, well, really our world can just never change. It doesn't matter what we do. And if that's our attitude, and we have put God in a box. We have one of our own members who is in jail 
that I have mentioned before who uh, broke into our church and stole from our church. And uh, our attitude could easily be he could never change. I'll tell you, I've thought that a number of times. We did all of that for him. I could give you a long, long list of things that our church, and by that I mean you, have done for him. And you think, how could he bite the hand that has fed him so well? And I don't quite understand that other than understanding that he has an addiction. And that for whatever reason, at whatever time during that day, he was out of his head and did some pretty crazy things. And if we say there is no hope for him, we have put God in our nice, neat little box. And if he says, there's no hope for me as I serve my time out in jail, then he has put God in a box. And we have limited God in so many ways God has never intended. And that's what Paul was saying to them. You can know God by understanding that God cannot be limited. Now, also, if you think about it here, Paul is talking to them about knowing God through their activity. As you look here at the end of Acts, uh, this particular chapter, for we too are His offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, He now commands all people everywhere to repent. And he goes on to talk about this activity, this way that they can know and engage God by turning away from their own gods, the, the gods that they have made for themselves and even of themselves, and to turn and to know God as God has revealed God's self. That is something that they were challenged to do. We heard from First Peter today, and if you were in Bible study uh, this morning, I, I know one of the classes was dealing with this First Peter chapter 3 text, and it touches on baptism as uh, Peter writes to Christians who have been scattered all across Cappadocia, Bithynia, uh, what we would call modern-day Turkey, and they are suffering because of their faith. They are being killed and persecuted and dealing with the violence of the governments around them because they believe in a risen Messiah, this risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and he talks to them about suffering and what all that means. But he talks about baptism. It's kind of a strange place where baptism is inserted by Peter right here. But before all of that, he talks about sanctifying Jesus in their hearts. And sanctifying means setting apart. And setting apart means activity and behavior. Peter says that you are to sanctify Jesus as Lord of your heart. We are to do that same thing. We are to have actions in our lives that relate to what we really believe. I think one of the biggest problems in our world today is because people separate belief from action. Isn't that the case with churches? I talk to people all the time who are fed up with church. And I get fed up with, not our church, but I get fed up with church as well. Because you see all of this a profession of belief or an understanding that, that God loves us and that God wants us to be in relationship with Him. And yet our actions show otherwise. They show hate. 
They show injustice. They show indifference. And they show that we really don't believe in the God that we say we do. And so what we must know is that we can know God through our repentance by turning from all of those things I just mentioned and turning to God. To say, God, I don't know everything about you. I don't understand all of your ways and the ways that you work around me. Your grace and your mercy, they just are beyond my comprehension. But to say that I want to allow you to come into my life, as Eric has said, and I want to know you in a personal kind of way. It means sanctifying Jesus as your Lord. As you saw Eric baptized here, it is a a way for him to profess his faith before you. But it is also a reminder to you and to me, those of us who have been baptized before, that we have made our vows of baptism too. That we too have said either out loud or within our hearts that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. But is He really? And are you willing to recommit to that in your life? Those are some ways that we can get to know God. There was a story uh, written by Matt Woodley in, in his book, The Folly of Prayer. He says, according uh, to an old Jewish story, once upon a time there was a four-year-old boy named Mordecai who refused to attend school and study Hebrew. Uh, Having studied Hebrew, I completely know why. (laughs) Whenever his parents tried to immerse his mind in the Torah or the Word of God, he would sneak away and play on the swing set. Every form of persuasion failed. Mordecai remained stubborn and defiant. The exasperated parents even brought him to a famous psychiatrist. But that also provided futile. Nothing changed the young boy's heart, which seemed to grow more distant, lonely, and hardened every week. Finally, in utter desperation, Mordecai's parents brought him to the local rabbi, a warm and wise spiritual guide in their community. As the parents explained their plight, pouring out their frustration and despair, the rabbi listened intently. Without saying a word, he gently picked up Mordecai, took him in his arms, and held him close to his chest. The rabbi held Mordecai close enough and tight enough so the young boy could feel the safe, rhythmic beating of the rabbi's heart. Then, still without a word, he gently handed the child back to his parents. From that point on, Mordecai listened to his parents. He studied the Torah, and when it was appropriate, he also slipped away to play on his swing set. And the moral to that story is that before Mordecai could ever be interested in the words of God, before Mordecai could ever be interested in the worship that would take place in the temple or in the synagogue, he needed to hear the heartbeat of God the Father. And as he heard that heartbeat, then he could study. Then he could truly know. As we go into this next week, I hope that you will think about knowing God. Not just knowing things about God, 
but knowing God. And the best way to do that is to get close to the Father, to allow Jesus the Son to draw you close to the Father's heart, that you could hear that rhythmic beating of God's eternal love for you. Let us pray.